Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, welcome to this next edition of the Defining Conservatism podcast. Today, I'm joined by Joseph Postel, Associate Professor of Politics at Hillsdale College, Stephen Hayward, Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, and Amina Malonik, a writer for American Greatness, Law and Liberty, and other conservative publications. I should also mention, Stephen, many of you will know, is a blogger at the Powerline blog, and Amina now is occasionally writing for the Powerline blog. Uh, we're here today to talk about common good. And American constitutionalism, uh, the common good, the idea of the common good has emerged in conservative uh, thinking and dialogue with gusto in the last few years. But, of course, it's frequently used as a signaling mechanism. It's uh, used in an exhortatory way. It's not exactly defined with precision, uh, nor do the people using it uh, want to uh, interact with the American Constitution and how they're thinking about it frequently, uh, but want to just define a certain brand of politics as, quote, the common good. So we think it bears uh, further discussion. Uh, I'll turn to you first, uh, Joe, in, in thinking about the common good and, and the American political scene. Um, how do you think about the common good and, the, and your background of learning and understanding and um, what it could possibly mean for us today in a, in a country of over 300 million people? Well, I think the common good is sort of at the center of the debate in the country's founding over whether the Constitution should be ratified or not. This debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists really centered on the question of whether a large republic could ever promote the common good. And the Anti-Federalists, of course, are well known for saying no large republic can promote the common good. The only thing that can uh, truly be dedicated to such a uh, such a common good is a small republic where the people are homogenous, where they all know each other, where they're tightly connected to the government, the representatives are close to the people. And so they looked at the Constitution and they thought that it would uh, it would result in this clashing of interests, but no ability to overcome those interests for the common good. The, the Federalist response was this actually will facilitate – uh, a government that promotes the common good because the various interests will have to work together, they'll have to compromise, they'll have to deliberate on what is good for the whole country. And so um, they were worried about the problem of faction in small republics and they thought large republics could overcome uh, those factions. And so I think what they ultimately come down to when the Constitution is ratified is a notion of the common good as promoted by the constitutional structure itself. And that's one thing I think is missing frequently from the analysis of the common good today is what kind of constitutional structure actually promotes the common good? Federalism, uh, the distribution of power between the states, localities, and the national government, and how different levels of government can promote different kinds of common goods, say national security at the national level, uh, but community in, a, in a, a vibrant civil society at the local and state levels. And so uh, reading that that debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, I think, illustrates how the structure of government plays really a fundamental role in helping a government actually promote the common good. Uh, I mean, I want to ask you a different question. Mm -hmm. What does the common good depend on? Uh, does it depend on a, a, an account of virtue uh, or common sense that needs to be worked out? Uh, can it just be a political program or a legislative program, or does it require a lot, a lot, a lot more elements to it? Um, and, and do you find the way common good is being talked about by conservatives today to, to, to do that? 
Well, I always have trouble with uh, morality entering into government, or I should say it's very difficult to differentiate, right, between what government uh, is doing and whether the political theory is aligning with it, right? So um, so there's always this tension between um, common sense of the people, and then you have obviously was the government is acting on that, um, but then for me at this point in, in certainly the world that I'm in, uh, being a writer, um, I see a lot of tension um, uh, between the people and the and the media elites. And that, of course, mm. depends what you mean by media elite, too. Um, I think when it comes to conservatism, it's incredibly fractured uh, right now. I think leftism is fractured, too. I, I think that right now... From, I, I rarely even talk about leftism because they they are so they they have entered into a kind of uh, insane asylum, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, of sphere. But the conservatism itself, I think there are a lot of good people um, out here in the media and uh, trying to piece it together. But this idea, I go back to this idea of branding. Uh, branding conservatism and branding personalities, which is, I think, working against the the wisdom of of conservatism. And I think the technological aspects of it, which is social media and and uh, those kinds of things, are right now working against it. Um, so I'm not I'm not trying to be nostalgic or anything like that for you know William F Buckley or anything like that. Although I really love him, um, <laughs> I'm nostalgic. I'm, Yes, yes, yes I, I will say that absolutely without reservation. But at the same time, I think that a little bit of contemplation on the on the metaphysical principles of, of conservatism and especially of what America is. And I speak as an immigrant or a former immigrant uh, from Bosnia who came here. I love America and uh, I, I really uh, don't want to give up on on that idea. So I think when conservatism is fractured, um, uh, not even ideologically, actually, just uh, from a from an, an action standpoint, when it's fractured, then America is fractured. Actually, uh, Stephen, you've been in the conservative movement for uh, many years. You've been a leading writer, uh, thinker. Um, what do you think is going on in the conservative movement that we started talking about the common good in a very precise way, like naming it, like I mean to speak for the common good, not some sort of loose notion of economic growth or small government or something right. like that? Boy, what a challenging question. Uh, one way of thinking about it is for too long a time, I think conservatism defined itself primarily in opposition to big government, to liberal government, the New Deal, progressivism, whichever uh, mode of that you want to take on. Uh, and I think by degrees, partly the exhaustion of modern liberalism and partly I think a, a practical perception that we made a mistake seeding the idea of the common good and the rhetoric of the common good to the left. I mean, you know, every leftist group, going back to Ralph Nader, would talk about we represent the public interest, which is a rough synonym for common good. Another great example of this that's even worse is uh, the idea of social justice, which today is wholly identified with deep leftist causes and radical egalitarianism, even though the idea is a thousand years old in Catholic social doctrine, for example, although what the left says by social justice and what the medieval Catholics meant by it are diametrically different, right? 
so just one piece to grab hold of, one of many, is that um, uh, especially some of the Catholic thinkers like Adrian Vermeule, but others, I think they're trying to revive some elements of that older idea of social justice or the substance of the common good, which isn't just the old, say, 18th century liberal idea that the common good is just the sum total of individual choices, which I think that to the extent that conservatism in many respects can be thought of as just a branch of liberalism is now breaking away from. Okay. Um, Something that you hear a lot about, Joe, is uh, liberal institutions uh, see themselves as neutral between competing worldviews, competing notions of the good, and that, that just can't be true. That our institutions have to come down squarely on the side of, you know, the integrity of the person, defending the family, religious freedom, those sorts of things. Is that um, uh, are you? Is that a way to think about the common good that conservatism did not previously, uh, and now needs to be much more robust in that respect? Yeah, I think though we have to be careful about how we're going to go about pressing that sort of a more robust definition of the common good. So. You know, if you a lot of the discussion around the common good today focuses on how the national government can have a national program to promote the common good, and of course there are two huge problems with that view. One is that we don't agree nationally because we have so many, you know, such a large expanse of territory, so many different points of view and different interests. We don't agree on what the common good is, and then secondly, even if we did, could Washington D.C. promote it in any way that would be effective? I think one of the great sort of successes of the conservative movement over the last uh, few decades has been to argue persuasively uh, that neither uh, the national government can promote such a a notion of the common good effectively, nor do we agree on what that is. And so they've argued for making those decisions at a much more local and state level. And um, it's something that I think maybe has vanished from the, from the discussion, these, uh, these days that we should probably revive. And the great thing about reviving the argument for doing this at the local and state levels is that it just sort of is firmly rooted in the American political tradition that we're trying to conserve. So, you know, if you look at how the 19th century Americans governed themselves, they promoted the common good through regulation. But it was never done from the center. It was always done from the bottom up and it was done sort of collectively by the citizens who had a conception of the common good and wanted to use government to implement that conception. So if we want to do that, I think we have to think about where we're going to do it and how government can be best organized to promote that notion of the common good. I mean, you write in many respects philosophically about contemporary issues. Um, What do you think is missing or, or evident or is the missing thing in our public discourse the reason why we're talking about the common good that you know, maybe what we're trying to do is find ways to protect ourselves, to protect things that are, we perceive to be under attack by sort of a relentless progressive onslaught, redefining boys as girls, to take a, a current example. Uh, I read today, this morning, the Virginia legislature, Democrats in the Virginia state legislature introduced a bill that would criminally prosecute parents for not affirming their child's gender identity. So we hear that. I think a lot of people, particularly conservatives, want to think there's got to be something morally uh, obligatory uh, that we have to defend. And this sort of brings in thinking about the common good as well. And is that necessarily wrong? Right. It's a it's a question of defining it from a, uh, first of all, as human beings, right? Human beings with inherent dignity. And I think that's definitely lacking or it's not part of the discourse. Uh, because, again, the media is driving this constant fear 
Um, and that includes also uh, with uh, in relation to schools, of course, uh, for, for children. A lot of people are homeschooling uh, for, for obvious reasons. But um, I think that if if we let go of, of, of the um, – you know, having a civil discourse does not mean that you don't make your opinions known or that you are not powerful in your position. But uh, I guess not engaging – uh, uh, in some sort of uh, violence, violence meaning violence on Twitter. I mean, I mean that like people are just attacking each other constantly. They're 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 calling each other names. I don't even say this from any sort of like you know moral perspective, like get your act together or something like that. I say it that this is useless. You know, actually, it does not do anything for for America, and definitely not for conservatism. I mean that's that goes without saying I think, but um, I think it harms it harms the American principles when these uh, when these discussions are not grounded in some kind of metaphysics. I think that you have to have some sort of foundation that you're working off of, and I think that's why the discourse is failing because you have a lot of brands that are people that are kind of cloaked in brands and they're just kind of sort of discussing these things. Some are better than others. Some will say something that's valuable. But unless you are going into the uh, uh, into the foundational idea of something that we're, you know, unless you're trying to figure it out, right, right. Uh, truly trying to figure it out, to have that sort of actual humility before, even just before a text, right, uh, I think that's... I can understand why we are in a situation that we're in right now, because the the chaos is is uh, uh, the chaos is continuing precisely because metaphysics is being ignored. I think that's why Buckley was successful in that sense because he was almost like an implied philosopher. You know, he wouldn't call himself that, and I and I'm hesitant to do that. But I think that there was a clear understanding of what order of things is. And because I don't think we have that right now, everything is kind of in flux, unfortunately. There's no way for us to have a dialogue. There's no shared consensus of citizenship, of, of, of objects that we can identify with language and define and talk about them. There's a lot of will. There's a lot of, you know, yes. you know, th- you know hurling yourself on the public stage, things like that. Um, I think I was going to ask you, Stephen, and, and feel free to get in on this point, but uh, a prominent conservative thinker who shall remain nameless, uh, uh, I won't say names available upon request because I just won't <laughs> say, uh, said two things um, I recently heard him say. Uh, we're no longer a country in any recognizable sense. Oh. And at the same time, he really you know, hammered home this point that we have to be about the common good. Uh, and so I just – what's – and I won't ask you to make sense of that, but I just – that sort of paradoxical thinking, which – I don't know. You're not saying that, but there is this sort of sense of: Are we still a country? And if we and if if we aren't, is the way to recover to attempt to recover us common good ideas? Yeah, I, I think the author you're referencing it could be two people who are both friends of mine. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I think we're in heated agreement here uh, on Amina's point about the metaphysical basis of all this. Uh, or actually, maybe uh, it's useful to dust off Tom Sowell's great book, A Conflict of Visions, from mm. 30 years ago. I think to update that, I think you'd put it this way. Uh, between left and right, there is a conflict over what in what consists the good life. So for the radical left these days, their fundamental principle is radical autonomy. To, to you know, they use that famous, ridiculous phrase of Justice Kennedy from 
the Planned Parenthood case, you know, everyone gets to define their own meaning of the universe. Uh, and, and so it's literally true. I know Joe, I'm sure, has heard this on campus a lot, and probably you have too, is to mention human nature is oppressive hate speech. I mean, they'll be literally attacked that way um, because the the radical left idea, to, uh, you know, we can't even agree on pronouns. You say we can't agree on something. So you have to. Uh, and so I think the conservative vision of the good life ultimately is rooted in the idea of human nature. So there's a fundamental metaphysical clash. Uh, now, but the second part of this, uh, and we that's the key argument, I think. The second part of this, uh, which Joe brought up, is so many of our friends uh, promoting common good conservatism, common good constitutionalism. They're challenging uh, implicitly and maybe explicitly uh, the long-held conservative view or libertarian view of that government is incompetent at so many things. For the Hayekian knowledge problem is one way to think about it, but others. And now suddenly our friends are saying, yeah, but things are so bad that maybe we need some forceful articulation or enforcement of some public norms. I don't know. It makes me very nervous. I think uh, just briefly, if you go back to the beginning – I'm not sure where the beginning is, but you go back to around 2015 or so when Obama was still president. And this first flashed up when the city of Richmond wanted to have mixed bathrooms, right? You know, people use any bathroom they wanted to. Big fight in the state legislature to preempt them. Apparently, as I understand it, because it's reporting on this at the time, there was a compromise reached. And it was Richmond could do what they wanted to do, and the rest of the state said, no, we're not going to ban this. Suddenly it went national, and Obama's Department of Education put out a threat saying all public schools now must have gender-neutral bathrooms or you'll lose your federal funding. Federal lunch program. Federal lunch program, yeah. right? I, I guess that was the, the mechanism of it, that's, which is uh, – That's where it is now. Right, and that's an amazing thing. To have. So I got centralized and went nationwide, and my compromise position for the moment is, all right, if Richmond – or I'll put it this way. I've said this for years. Let San Francisco be San Francisco and let Boise be Boise, mm. and that would be a better way to move forward. But that also, I think, depends upon – Progressives leaving it there, yes. which that's which they won't do. Yeah. It requires it requires some sort of substantive articulation of 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 why that federalism should be allowed to unfold. But also, you can't just talk about that. You've got to talk about why the powers of the federal government have to be limited as well. And, and yeah. that and that's uh, one of the problems that we're in. Um, Joe, as you uh, think about this, uh, the common good. I mean, it seems to be arising to a sense of that conservatism failed. Uh, that it failed to really conserve anything that matters other than tax cuts. <laughs> so if uh, – but we think about the common good in, in that regard. Is Does this give some more tools to conservatives to think about how they should interact in the public square? I think it can. I, I don't think it's any new tools that conservatives didn't already There's have. There's nothing behind the safe, behind the glass that we haven't already broken the glass to pull out yet. Yeah, but I, do I think th- there's there's that sense that we're not actually playing with the real weapons. Yeah, I mean, I do think, though, in a way, conservatives have, because they've focused on the national government for so long, have kept some of the tools behind the glass. So, you know, uh, in Hillsdale, Michigan, where I now live, local school school board elections take on a new importance these days. Um, there have been fights with local libraries. Uh, the the college uh, held an in-person commencement in the spring of 2021, and uh, the local sheriff didn't shut us down even though either he had the right or the duty to do so. And so these local officials were sort of the means by which we governed ourselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, as Steve just mentioned, sometimes the federal government, because it has so much money and can use strings attached to those funds – can try to intervene, try to shut down local decision-making. 
Um, and so conservatives have to be attentive to that. They have to mm-hmm. preserve the space for local and state officials to make these decisions. But I do think, you know, we, we've been spending a lot of time trying to make the national government over into something else that maybe we need to still be focusing on organizing in a more local way and, in this, and okay. at the state level to try to promote the vision of the common good that we have to present. The uh, the late Angelo Cotavilla and some of his later essays, you know, reflected back to the mid 20th century, the civil rights battles and, you know, in particular, putting federal troops to open up federal schoolhouses in certain places like Arkansas. And and then Cotavilla brought it forward to today and said, well, what if Texas shut down every abortion clinic? Is it really conceivable the federal government would – this is before Dobbs – would would march the federal army into Texas to keep them open? That seems unlikely. Um, But that, of course, raises the question of the breakdown in consensus, the breakdown potentially in an an agreement on constitutional rights at a very fundamental level, which raises the question again of uh, what, what should conservatives actually do to promote a common good? Uh, maybe it's maybe it's this robust local model that Joe's suggesting. I'll I'll ask both of you that, Amina and Steve. I, I do agree. Locally, definitely things need to. That's how we affect that kind of change, right? If uh, if if you're doing a local level, but I what I'm seeing right now missing from it is uh, some sort of uh, um, a, a better intellectual, and I use that word very very cautiously, uh, a better intellectual engagement with these ideas. I think that we tend to go, I don't blame people for doing this. I mean, I understand the impetus because we tend to go into these extremes, you know, saying, well, America is lost. Let's all go to Hungary. Well, you can't go to Hungary. I mean, you can, but, you know, I think it's kind of uh, uh, uh very, very myopic or, or, I don't know, small-minded to think in those terms, especially when this country is um, has such an amazing and rich, you know, rich foundation. So I think to actually act in such a way is almost to be a, a Randian. You know, I'm going to leave. Uh-oh. I'm going to leave this place. Uh, and it's not like we are. Uh, 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 this is not the same as war. The way I've I've lived through a war. You know, I've left in the middle of. Uh, you know, I've, I've spent almost a year in the war, and then I left it while the war was still going on. So uh, this is really a very, very different situation. So I think that we need a little more courage, I think, from people and to figure out also, uh, I don't know if, if any of you have experienced this, but I sometimes have trouble figuring out who is a real American. And that goes, um, meaning who really believes in this country and has, uh, has a, you know, a humility to to somehow contribute to the order of things and contribute to the order of what America is. Uh, so that's I, so. It, I think that's what makes the associations very difficult. You know, that's why the group is so fractured, because you wonder what's on your mind, what are you trying to do, et cetera, precisely because of this continuous and obsessive branding. And uh, I don't think that's the correct strategy. That just falls into kind of a tech tech mindset. And I, I, I think, again, without the metaphysical foundation, you got nothing. It's not going to work, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I think we need to make, uh, to use Amina's phrase, metaphysical arguments. I'll add that uh, you know, Joe mentioned school board elections, and this has become a flashpoint all over the country. And I, I think it's a bigger phenomenon than the media and other people have reported. You know, we talk a lot about, uh, not giving away too many secrets, we talk a lot about let's spend $100 million to take back the House of Representatives and so forth. 
For $100,000, you can affect 20 school board races around the country. And there's actually some people organizing to do that. You don't need a lot of money. I'll give you one example from my little hometown out in California. It's 6,000 people. We fight about water forever, and that's a long story. But the California Coastal Commission, a thoroughly Stalinist body, sent out an edict several months ago, all construction must stop because of your water problems and big drought this year. And the county and my little town said, that's nice. We're going to ignore you. And I, I like this rebellious spirit because the Coastal Commission's powerless to enforce this. So they just give these edicts. And now you're having local governments say no. And this is a wonderful development. Even in California, there's a <laughs> smidgens of hope. Okay. I think so. We started out a conversation on the common good. We have ended with a rebellious spirit. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is probably the perfect time to conclude. Uh, Joe Postel, uh, Amina Malonik, and Stephen Hayward, thank you so much for joining us on Defining Conservatism today. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you.